The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, church. It is an honor to uh, spend this moment together with you, uh, focusing on God's word, hearing what our Lord has to say to us. Our text this morning is going to be Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Again, that's Revelation chapter 3. Verses 1 to 6, we're continuing our series uh, through Jesus' addresses to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And today we'll be hearing what he has to say to the church in Sardis. So again, that's Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God, And the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we hear his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a communicating God. We thank you so much for this incredible book, the Bible, your holy word, where we can hear your thoughts, we can know who you are, what you've done, who we are accordingly. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would richly fill each one of us as we hear your word. Lord, open our eyes to see the truth, soften our hearts to believe you, Lord. Transform our lives as we see Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Lord, um, save us, transform us, help us to be like him. Lord, please help me as I teach this passage. Please help me to teach it faithfully and clearly, and Lord, we pray your will would be done for your glory in us as we hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you lived in the time Revelation had been written, and you wanted to communicate that something was impossible, you could say you might as well try to capture the Acropolis of Sardis. The reason you would say that is because capturing the Acropolis of Sardis was considered impossible. It was a fortress that sat on a small plateau about 1,500 feet high, and it was surrounded on three sides by vertical cliff faces so that conquering this fortress seemed like it could never be done. However, despite all the strength of this fortress, twice in its history, the Acropolis was captured. And each time in the same way. 
First of all, 550 BC, after losing a major battle, famous king Croesus returned to Sardis, and no guard was left stationed by what seemed like an unclimbable cliff. Well, it turns out it was climbable. A solitary Persian soldier climbed it, opened the gates, and the fortress was taken. 300 years later, historians tell us it was the same thing. Around 215 BC, Antiochus the Great besieged Sardis for over a year without success. The fortress seemed unconquerable. But one of his soldiers observed the unguarded approach. And again, this time, 15 soldiers climbed the cliff, thought to be unclimbable. It was unguarded. They were able to enter the city, open the gates, and the fortress was taken. Well, here's the moral to our story. The Acropolis of Sardis was unconquerable until its occupants became complacent. Until they left no guards stationed. And when they did, when they were complacent, the fortress fell because complacency kills. Complacency kills. What is complacency? Complacency is an uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's situation. It's the assumption Everything is fine. No problems exist. No effort needed here. And spiritual complacency is about the worst danger of all. That's the theme as we hit uh, G- the fifth of Jesus' addresses to these seven churches in Asia Minor. We see that the church in Sardis was suffering from the same disease that twice conquered the city's own Acropolis. This church had the reputation of being alive. It seemed like no enemy could ever climb the cliff of their security. But in reality, their situation was very different. They had become spiritually complacent, and complacency kills. The church is in mortal danger, not from without, but from within. So as we look at what Jesus says to this church, let's remember the sevenfold pattern that we've seen in every one of these messages to the churches. First, we remember each address always begins with a declaration of who Jesus is. That is always all important. Seeing Jesus for who he is is the ultimate issue. It changes everything. All our needs are met in him. So we see a declaration of who Jesus is. Second, all churches always hear about the knowledge of Jesus. He knows. He knows us. He knows our situation. Third, most churches get some encouragement from Jesus. He loves to encourage his people for what they're doing well, but not our church this morning. Fourth, most churches get a rebuke from Jesus. There's something he's calling them to change. Fifth, all churches receive a calling from Jesus, kind of an an encouragement or an exhortation saying, this is what I want you to do to follow me. Sixth, most churches get a consequence from Jesus. This always ties to the rebuke. If you won't listen to the rebuke, if you don't repent, if you don't turn, this is what's going to happen. And seventh, all churches receive a promise from Jesus for those who conquer. There's great reward for following Christ. He is always infinitely worth it. 
So we'll begin our text today. A little background again, uh, we heard in the introduction to Sardis. Um, and the issue here to understand is that the threat is from the inside. The danger is on the inside. Uh, we've seen over and over again, haven't we? Have we've studied Jesus' messages to these churches. The churches of Asia Minor were under massive pressure to join in the idolatry and lifestyle of their surrounding culture. And most likely it was the same thing for this church in Sardis. And yet, in Jesus' address this morning, it's different from the others in that outside influences are hardly mentioned at all. Um, They're not shown to be a danger or an issue. No, for the church in Sardis, just like The fortress of their city, just like their Acropolis, the threat is from the inside. The danger seems to be their own spiritual complacency. And it's so dangerous that Jesus says to them, you're basically dead. Well, by God's grace, I hope our situation at Fountain of Life is a bit healthier than that of the church in Sardis. But this text is a great reminder for us, both individually and corporately, not to be spiritually complacent, to watch out for that which could kill us spiritually, kill our church spiritually, but rather to learn, we want to learn and foster the things that make us alive as a church, alive as God's people. So that's what I want us to see this morning. Let's begin then with the declaration Jesus' declaration of himself will be in chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who have the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So we see right away Jesus wants the church to know he's the one who has the seven spirits. Now on first reading, uh, this can seem quite confusing. What are we supposed to, to do with the idea of the seven spirits of God? Well, we want to remember, Revelation loves to speak with a language of symbolism. Symbolism is meant to express the deep realities of what we don't quite see on the surface. So as we understand that Revelation speaks symbolically, we also see that the book itself will often give you clues as to what you need to understand what the symbols mean. So in this case, I want to remind us of the blessing we receive from the Lord in Revelation 1, verses 4 to 5. Like many, maybe even most, of the New Testament letters to the churches, there's a blessing of grace from God for his people. And it's a blessing from the triune God. It's no different here, or it's no different here in Revelation 1. Let's look at Revelation 1, 4 to 5. Uh, we see there, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you. And peace from him who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. This is a blessing from the triune God. We see, first of all, in verse 4, grace comes from the Father, the one who is eternal, who was, who is, who is to come. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's the author of reality, and his people receive his grace. We also see at the end of this blessing, verse 5, grace comes from the Son of God. It's grace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. He is the one who died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead in victory as the first fruits of what will happen for all of God's people. And he reigns now over all the kings and nations of the earth. He will return. So we receive grace from the Father in the beginning, grace from the Son at the end. And here in the middle, grace comes from the seven spirits who are before his throne. But what does this mean? Remember, seven, that number is loaded with meaning in the book of Revelation. It means completeness, wholeness, sufficiency. And so it's on purpose that there's letters to seven churches. Yeah, they were seven real churches, but the number seven also shows us it's for the entire universal church. It's for all of God's people between his between the ascension and return of Jesus Christ. And so when we see seven spirits, we're not to imagine seven actual spirits. We're to see that this is the Holy Spirit of God who empowers the church. In fact, there's seven churches, seven spirits. That means there's enough, there's a fullness of the Holy Spirit for every single local church. The Holy Spirit is sufficient He's with us, and he is complete for all our needs. That is so important, because who is it who has the seven spirits? Who is it that sends the spirit to his churches? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus promised in the Gospel of John, he would send his spirit to his people. And that's what we see here. And this is so precious, especially in the context of thinking about a church that is dying. What could possibly make the church come alive? When Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is the priest who walks among his lampstands. Those lampstands are symbolic for God's presence in God's temple. We're told that the lampstands signify the reality of the church, God's people, the anointed people who are to glow and shine with his light. And we see that Jesus is the one who can send the Holy Spirit even to a dying church whose flame has almost gone out and set her on fire again. It's a picture of hope. Even when you're dying individually, your faith feels like it's about to burn out. Jesus can send the Holy Spirit and make you alive again. Even when the church seems like it's going to fade, it's going to end. Jesus Christ sends his Holy Spirit and makes us burn with life again as we see him and who he is. It's a message of hope for the nearly dead that Jesus can make us alive by the power of of his spirit. He holds the stars in his hands. That represents just this heavenly reality of, the, of, of God's knowledge of his people and that Jesus holds his people in his hand. He's sovereign in control. He can bring us to life. He is our hope. That's what we're to see with this declaration. Jesus can make the dead come to life by the power of his spirit. Now we see number two, the knowledge of Christ. He says, I know your works. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. We're reminded here that Jesus sees what maybe no one else sees. This church looks good to themselves. They look good to the people driving by. Their website looks really good. They have the reputation of being alive. People are doing things. There's activity 
But this is the most sobering message that Jesus has to any of the churches. He actually, for the most part, you're basically dead. And so we're reminded here, you know, you can fake anyone out about nearly anything for a while. You can. You can fake nearly, you can fake anyone out about nearly anything for a while. But not Jesus. He knows all the way down into the depths of your heart. He knows you better than you. And he knows if you're real or not. He knows right now if you are spiritually alive or not. And sometimes the kindest thing he can do is show us the reality of just how far away from him we might be. The kindest thing Jesus can say to someone who spiritually is nearly dead is, you're dying, wake up. And maybe that's what he's saying to some of us this morning. Jesus knows. Number three, we usually get the encouragement, but not for this church. There's not much encouragement here. Jesus moves straight into the rebuke. Straight into the rebuke. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I think this is another way to say you're fake. It's another way to say you're fake. Remember, these aren't people who are explicitly denying belief in God. These are not people who um, are explicitly denying Jesus Christ. They have the appearance, the reputation of being alive. They would probably claim to be Christians at this point. The problem is their Christianity has become mostly nominal. You know what that word means? It means in name only. There's no reality to it. The reality of being a Christian has lost its meaning for this church. So it's a terrifying reminder. It's so scary that it's quite possibly, it's quite possible to be churchified, religified, complacent about Jesus and to assume that you're fine with Jesus. And to think that you've gone to church a couple times, or you prayed a prayer once, or you've read the Bible for, or you have a moral compass, you're a nice person, you could have all of those things and be dead. A fake Christian in name only. What a horrible rebuke. Lord, wake us up if that's us. Jesus immediately then gives the calling. Gives the calling. Look at verses 2 to 3. Verse 2, wake up, strengthen what remains is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. So the way I understand this is Jesus is telling them what he tells most churches, repent, that's the, that's the usual calling, turn Turn to me. Turn, to repent means to turn. You're going one way. You're serving these things. You're living for these things. You need to see how that's the wrong way to go and turn. Turn yourself to faith in Christ, submission to Christ, life for Christ. But Jesus gives them four aspects to what repentance looks like. Did you see that? Four aspects to what repentance looks like. Wake up is part of it. Strengthen what remains is part of it. Remember what you received and heard. That's part of it. And keep it. That's part of it. 
So I'm wondering here, what does this mean for churches specifically? I assume the church in Sardis would have known in more detail what Jesus was talking about, what he wanted them to do. But maybe on first reading, it's not as obvious for us. Like, wake up in what way? Wake up to what? Strengthen what remains. What do you mean, what remains? How do we strengthen it? Remember what you received. Well, what did we receive? Keep it. Keep what? What does it look like to keep it? What, what does this mean? Maybe it's not as obvious for us as the pra- for, uh, regarding the practical details. But as always, God's word will answer these questions. And there are many clues in this text and in Revelation itself that shows us what Jesus means about a church being alive. What it means to what it looks like for a church to be alive. And I think these clues are found in the promise about the garments. They're found in the promise about the garments. We see what it means to be alive in the symbolism of these garments. So down in chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus promises, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. So we can believe, can't we, that to conquer is to be spiritually alive? Of course, of course. And we can believe then that the spiritually alive are the ones who wear white garments, whatever that means. To be alive is to have these white garments. So we've got to figure out what these white garments are all about. You know, when I was a kid, I had this idea that everyone in heaven wore kind of bleached bathrobes. Heaven sounded like a Tide commercial. Um, strange, right? They're all in white robes. Like, there's, there's no variety here. Well, is this a fashion statement about what people wear in heaven? Uh, of course not, right? We remember, to read Revelation accurately, you need to read Revelation symbolically. So the key question is, what do these robes symbolize? I want to give you four observations about the meaning of these white robes. Four observations, and I think they help us see what it means to be alive. Core principles of a living church. And so we want to emphasize these things and hold to these things and grow in these things. So four things about the symbols of the white robes. First thing I want to show you from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation 7, 9. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. First thing to see, what's everyone in heaven wearing? White robes. You have this vision of all of God's people that he saved from every tribe and tongue, all there to worship. And it's true, they're all in this symbol wearing white robes. This is what we're supposed to take, at least, from this first idea. Number one, these robes are essential. You have to have what these things symbolize. There's no one in heaven without the white robe. And everyone who has the white robe makes it to the presence of God in heaven. They're essential. This is so important. I think in context of this text, we want, we want to remember, we don't want to be complacent about this. Complacency kills. We want to be awake to what this means. 
Number one, the robes are essential. Number two, okay, what do they mean? Revelation 7, verses 13 to 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? Verse 14. I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What does this mean? Again, amazing symbolism. What kind of blood is it that can take a robe and make it turn white? The blood of the lamb. Well, we remember this is maybe the greatest symbol ever. It's a picture of the gospel. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We remember the heart of the gospel here. Jesus took our place as our substitute, he was the only one ever truly, fully alive. Never complacent about his love for his father. Always faithful and obedient. Kept the law with perfection. And yet the innocent one, the holy one, the perfect lamb, died on the cross in the place of his people. He paid the debt we owed to God's justice and wrath. And there on the cross, he earned our forgiveness, our acceptance. And so then, to repent of our sin and genuinely trust Jesus Christ and what he's done, to put our faith in him is to take these dirty robes we had before and this red blood of Christ washes them white. What does that mean? It means we're forgiven. <laughs> we're forgiven of all our sin, past, present, future, washed clean, the stains are gone. All shame is removed. The guilt is gone. In fact, we are given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ freely as a gift. It's as if I put on the coat of Christ himself, his merit, his accomplishments, his perfections, and now my robes, which were dirty and ugly and stained, they're taken off, they're removed, and I wear the coat of my Savior, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. The first thing to see about the robes is they're essential. The second thing to see about the robes is that they are about genuine trust in the gospel. Trust in the gospel. And friends, this is the first and ultimate reality when it comes to whether or not you and I or our church is spiritually alive. You can't be dead and love the gospel. And if you love the gospel, it's because you're alive. And guess why churches die? They die because they forget the gospel. One generation will love it. The next generation will assume it. A third generation will deny it. And they're dead. And this is so common in our day. So common in our day. How many churches, big churches, famous churches, strong churches, doing all sorts of things, big budgets. They no longer emphasize the gospel. 
They no longer want to say, Jesus is the eternal son of God who became flesh and died for sins and rose from the dead, literally, historically, reigns now and will return. They no longer want to say, he's the only way to the Father. They want to diminish or forget or set aside the gospel. And any church that demeans or denies or forgets or is complacent about the gospel itself is on its way to dying. First thing here about these robes, a genuine trust in the gospel. So I want to ask you, all listening right now, what's your pulse towards the gospel? What do you look to to make you right with God? What's the power for your life right now this morning? What's, what's the treasure to you? I hope it's the gospel. Next thing to see about the robes, we see this in Revelation 19, 7 to 8. So, so far we've seen the robes are essential. The robes are about a genuine trust in the gospel. We're going to see our third aspect here, Revelation 19, 7 to 8. Here the text is this, um, this praise to God. It says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then it says this, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Despite all their flaws, one day Jesus' people will look beautiful. We'll look like a bride on her wedding day. And this symbol shows us that the gospel that justifies us makes us right with God by grace through faith, freely as a gift, apart from our works. The gospel that justifies us also sanctifies us. After being made right with God by faith alone in what Jesus has done, that same faith will see our hearts changed to love God and his ways and to grow in living more and more to be like Jesus according to his word. And so our robes start as a gift of grace by faith and they continue still as a gift of grace. But as we participate in, the li in living the life God has called us to according to his word, frankly, plainly, it looks like obedience. Obedience to God, not to make yourself right with him, but obedience to him that flows from the reality that you are right with him due to what Jesus has done for you. A living church wants to obey God because of his love for us in the gospel. We want to obey God. We see his word. We want to love what he loves. We want to do what he says. We want to follow his design for how he's made us to live, which means that if you love the gospel and you have a desire to grow in obedience to God and you're putting that into practice, you're alive. Only the Holy Spirit could do that in us. It also means that a church which is no longer concerned with obedience to God is a dying church. And we've seen this throughout Revelation. This is continued warning to each of these churches. Hey, the culture's putting pressure on them to follow their idolatry and the lifestyle that comes. And Jesus is warning them about it because the kind of church that says, remember there was false teaching that says, oh, you can claim to love Jesus and live that way and be fine. And Jesus says, I hate that, that teaching. And one reason he hates it is because it kills the church. It kills us. And so churches today, how many say, sure, follow in line 
with cultural ethics, cultural morality. And it's scary if we're not living with a desire to obey God according to his word, which transcends every culture. We're on our way to dying. So no, we want to embrace, because of God's gift of grace for us, making us righteous in Christ, and the life change that comes, the new identity we have as children of God, by the power of the Spirit, we want to live in loving obedience to him. That's the third thing these robes mean. So the robes, show they're essential. The robe is essential. It's about genuine faith in the gospel. And it's about the life transformation of obedience that flows from faith in the gospel. One more thing I think that's important to see. These robes are about endurance in the gospel. Endurance in the gospel. Look at Revelation 16, 15. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief. That sounds just like our text this morning. Our text for Sardis. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Well, this is a colorful illustration. Jesus is going to come back and he says, like a thief. Well, what does that mean? That means, uh, well, see, thieves don't call ahead. Right? Thieves don't say, hey, I was thinking about raiding your living room on Thursday. Would you mind leaving? No, they don't give you a warning on when they're going to come. It's a surprise. Jesus says, I'm going to come like that. It's a surprise. And so you want to be awake. Of course, that doesn't mean literally. It's going to be okay if you're taking a nap when Jesus comes back. He's not speaking literally. He's talking about spiritually awake. And what's it mean to be spiritually awake? Boy, this fits our text perfectly. you got to keep your garments on. That's another symbol. What does that mean? Well, we've seen what it means. The garment is to have a sincere trust in the gospel and to live a life of obedience by the power of the Spirit that comes from that trust in the gospel. And you want to keep that on. What, what this symbol teaches is that you need to endure in these things until the end. You need to endure And this fits this church problem of complacency. There was probably a day when they thought as a church, oh, the gospel's great. There was probably a day as a church when they thought, we want to obey God for his glory because of what he's done for us in the gospel. But they got complacent. They didn't guard that cliff anymore. And the enemy has come and they've forgotten the gospel and they've forgotten about obedience. And now they're naked and exposed. And when Jesus comes back, They'll be seen as fakes. God's people, hey, we have ups and we have downs, don't we? We have ups and we have downs. But we know from God's word, God's people will endure until the end with faith in Christ. They will. That's what it means to conquer. It's what it means to overcome. And so the illustration of the robes here shows us This is essential because it's a genuine trust in the gospel. It's about obedience that comes from the gospel. And it's about endurance in those things, no matter the cost, until the end. You've got to endure. It's a big lesson for us. It's been about six months, hasn't it, since COVID hit us? Studies are coming out. Concerns are coming to light. What has this done with people who were practicing Christians? You still reading your Bible? 
Are you still, uh, are you still seeking God? Maybe you've been in, unable to come due to health concerns. Are you connecting with God's people somehow? Are you pursuing your relationship with God? Do any of us feel complacent because we think, oh, I, I used to go to church. Yeah, I believed that once. Oh, this used to be a passion for me. But now all these concerns politically, economically, health-wise, school-wise, everything else, have they drowned out the concern of, do I love Christ? Am I living for him? Now we remember Jesus, four aspects of repentance. Wake up, which means wake up to your own pulse towards him and what he's done. And what it means to live for him. Are you awake to the majesty, to the holiness, to the value of Jesus Christ? And the reality that he reigns now and is going to return to judge the world according to his word. Strengthen what remains. We see here, is there any faith left? Is there a, a flickering flame of love for Christ according to the gospel? If it's there, strengthen it. Fan that flame. Cry out to Jesus to send you the Holy Spirit to move in your heart, to move you, to love what you ought to love. Foster the faith that is there. Connect with other believers. Seek God. Get in your word. Do whatever it takes to grow in him. Remember, Jesus says, what you received and heard. I'm sure that is an exhortation to remember the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. See that? In which you stand. Oh, we stand in this. By which you are being saved. It's saving you now. If, 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 if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. If you don't hold fast to Christ and what he's done, you believed in vain. Which means it wasn't there, it wasn't real. And then Paul reminds us, For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on a third day in accordance with the scriptures. Friends, this text is a grace. It's a grace. And if the hard word is, hey, you, you're, you're being complacent, you're on your way to death, the kindness of it is, you can wake up. You can wake up. Come believe the gospel again. It still saves sinners. Come trust Christ again and know that you're his. The fourth word from Christ was keep it. Keep it. Keep what? John 8, 51, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Keep what? Keep his word. Love his word. Hold fast to the truth of his word. Be convicted about what his word says. Live accordingly to what his word says. And even more, I think, in context here, it's share that word with others. Down in chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I'll confess his name. That's amazing. We'll get to that. But you know what it reminds me of? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 
to 33. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. True faith is a public faith where we're not ashamed to let people know the truth about Jesus and what he's done. That's part of what it means to keep his word. So what do the robes show us about what it means to be alive, how to stay alive? Genuine trust in the gospel, pursuing the life of obedience to God's word that flows from the gospel and enduring in that no matter the cost. Now let's see the consequence. Verse three, if you'll not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. We've seen what it means that Jesus will come like a thief He comes in surprise, and to the fake, he comes against them. That's sobering. That's terrifying. That's scary. We should wake up. Let's wake up. We don't want him to come and be exposed as fakes. And yet, Jesus says in verse 4, You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I love that Jesus can make a distinction between the generality of a local church and individuals in that church. And even though the church as a whole looks like it's dying, there are still legit, real thing Christians in that community. And he says, I see you. I know your names. And I see you're going to walk with me in white, for you're worthy. What's it mean they haven't soiled their garments? Well, they're probably staying faithful to the gospel. They're probably living it out. They're probably not following the cultural pressure around them. And he says, you're going to walk with me in white. And that means forever, now and later forever, for they're worthy. You know, that, that phrase, I think, is hard for us. Um, the way we're taught theology and taught the gospel is we're used to saying, right? And this is probably what we should say 99% of the time. I'm not worthy. How many of you think you are worthy to walk in white with Jesus? <laughs> that even sounds... Uh, No, I shouldn't say that. And most of the time you're right, you shouldn't say that. Because you're not. But that's the glory of what Jesus just said here. What did Jesus just say to these faithful Christians in our place? You are worthy. You walk in white because you're worthy. Why are they worthy? Because they have the robe on. Whose robe in it is it? It's his. They wear his righteousness. They walk in his spirit according to his word. And because of what he's done in their life to save them and to see the transformation in them, which they have participated in, the sanctification, they are in him worthy. That's a wonderful thing. Finally, the promise, verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. As we've seen, to conquer is to endure to the end, no matter the cost, faithful to Christ according to his word. That's what it means to conquer in Revelation, is to endure to the end, to death, loving the gospel and living in the light of it. And Jesus says, those who don't forget me, I will surely remember them. There's a book of life, and if you belong to Christ, your name is in it. And he knows you. 
You're his. He won't ever forget his people who belong to him. He will keep us for himself. We might be tempted to be complacent about him. He is never complacent about us. Praise God. And look at this promise. I'll confess his name before my father and his angels. It's worth it here to use your imagination a little bit. I honestly have no idea what it's going to be like to stand before Christ on the last day. But I imagine it to be very holy and awesome. And the idea of Jesus all of a sudden turning his attention after dealing with all the nations of the world and scads of people, finally when he had turns his attention to me, can you imagine when he finally turns his attention to you? Wouldn't it be amazing to hear him confess your name before his father and his angels? For Jesus to put his arm around you and say, this is my daughter right here, or my sister. She's, she belongs. She's in. She wears my righteousness. She's lived by faith. She's proclaimed my truth. Look, she's ours before the Father and before his angels. To hear, this is my brother. Well done, good and faithful servant. Before the Father, before his angels. There would be no greater reward. And that's what those who stay awake are going to receive. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Well, what's the Spirit saying to you this morning as you encounter this passage? Maybe you're realizing you're not a Christian. You've heard about Jesus. You're interested in religion. You've kind of pondered these things. You want to be a nice person, but you're, maybe the Spirit's showing you you don't really know Jesus. You haven't trusted yourself to him. You haven't wanted to live according to his word. I just want to invite you. Trust Jesus even now. Trust him today. Cry out to him. Say, save me. Um, take over my life. Hold me, I believe the message of what you've done to save sinners. You've lived a perfect life in my place. You died on the cross for my sins. You rose from the dead and you receive those who trust in you. Trust in him today. He will give you his very own robe. He will make you righteous in his righteousness. He will earn your adoption as a child of God. Trust him. Maybe you're wondering or you're worried or you're concerned that you've been kind of complacent that the gospel itself has hit kind of the, the edge of the radar of your life, that pursuing Christ and living for him isn't quite as important as it used to be. Maybe this text is telling you, hey, wake up what's there. Strengthen what's there. I just want to ask you, how are you going to do that? How are you going to strengthen what's there? How are you going to realign yourself to be passionate again about the gospel? Take action on that. Share that with somebody. And if you're pursuing this, obviously none of us are hitting it 100%. None of us are perfect in this every day. But if you're pursuing this, be encouraged. Jesus knows you. He sees you. He sent his spirit to you. 
He's going to keep you. He's going to acknowledge you before his Father. But church, by the power of the Spirit, let's be a living church. We pray for Fountain of Life that we would be a living church. That we would love the gospel and live in the light of it and do it until the end. Let's be that way for God's glory, for our joy, by the power of the Spirit in the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this powerful, confronting text. We pray that it would have its work in our lives, individually and as a community. Make us alive. Let us burn with the power of the Holy Spirit in love for Christ and what he's done and love for his word. And let us make it to the end. Lord, bring back the wayward, save the sinner, keep your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.